Good morning, all you hot food people, listeners. Um, you're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig, and we hope today's interviews are going to help you spice up your life a little bit uh, in the cold, dreary winter here. Yeah, well, but, maybe but, not where you are. Both of, t- both of today's guests said said that they were they felt they were on a really good mission, helping people to be able to cook more interesting food at home. Well, which is what we all have to do. I mean, right, exactly. Uh, the first is, is we've been running this as a series of um, interviews with our good friends at Burlap and Barrel, the, as far as I'm concerned, preeminent source of spices. And, oh, there's no question about it. And, you, yeah. and you'll, when, when you hear their story, yeah. you'll, you'll, you'll understand why. Yeah, let's, let's cue that one up, and we're going to talk to Ori. Zahar. Now on to our favorite spice company, <laughs> Burlap and Barrel, which, by the way, is spelled with one L, not as I was telling you with two. <laughs> I had to point then, it out at some point. <laughs> well, no, I, I mean, why not? I mean, my spelling's gone to pot. I mean, basically, I was spell check, so... Yeah, I got we actually with two L's just in case people would go there. Not because of you, but because people have Oh, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. And so we bought it just in case. Well, you know, it didn't look right when I saw it written down. But anyhow, when we were talking to a partner in this company called Ori Zohar, and um, we, we want to bring to you, uh, first of all, their products, of course, and their their mission, of which is really telling stories through spices all over the world. And uh, they're always doing something new. Um, and what prompted this current interview was uh, several things. One, they introduced the Spice Club, which is the perfect vehicle in this time when all these people are now sitting at home cooking, sometimes for even the first time. Uh, Ori, tell us about the Spice Club. Yeah, so at a high level, we source single-origin spices directly from smallholder farmers all over the world. We're a public benefit corporation. And what we're trying to do is we found ourselves with a lot of people said, help me figure out what to choose and what should I cook with and what are your favorites and what are this and that. And so, you know, we've been actually part of the Rancho Gordo Bean Club, which is Rancho Gordo is already one of my favorite companies. Oh, mine too. I love him. Right, Steve him. Sando, he's brilliant, and, and the beans are incredible. incredible. And they had a yeah. bean club, and it was a hotly contested thing to get into the bean club. It was very hard. They only had so many spots, and they would only open them up so often. But it was really fun. We would get, uh, you know, six one-pound bags of beans plus a special item every three months, and that would arrive in my home. And it was just so fun to have this, like, curated box, and then I would go and figure, like, almost like a CSA, almost like a farmer's box. <laughs> Yeah. And so people started asking us about how did they want to try new spices and how they can get them more frequently. We said, you know what, let's do it. let's do a spice club. And we did our <laughs> inaugural shipment in November. Um, and the whole idea is in the spice club you get five items, and it's $45, and that includes shipping. And this box is every price. three months. And so we okay. tried to do some – so we said we'll have new harvests of our existing spices in there. We'll have new spices that we haven't launched yet, so you can kind of give us the first round of feedback on, on what it is. Um, and then we'll try to have, like, fun collaboration products. And so our last Spice Club, we have a real strong no-spoilers policy until everybody gets their box. But for the last box that went in November, 
Uh, we were we put in a bay leaf powder, which was whole bay leaves that are just ground into a powder. And so what's really fun about those is that you don't have to fish them out of your dish. Um, and so you can just kind of sprinkle it in. But you can also use them much more in a much more versatile way. So, like, you can use them in rubs for, like, lamb or chicken. And, like, you can just kind of use them as part of mixes. And you can use them in, like, batter, in the batter blend for when you're going to, like, fry something. And so that was a really fun new one that we had tried. And, and that's going to be now how we do bay leaves because it's, it's more compact. It's a really good bang for your buck, and it's really it, it's so much more useful. Um, we had sun-dried tomato powder. This is a That's brand funny. new one for us. And so yeah. it, uh, tomatoes are dried in the sun. This is done in Turkey they come from, and then they oh, get wow. ground into this fine powder, and you sprinkle the tomatoes all over, you know, whatever you want. It's like, an, it's like a umami bomb. It's like the savory umami bomb, and that's been really fun. I've been even using it and sprinkling it on fresh tomatoes. Uh, I've been um, actually using them in salads. If the ones that are in jars with um, oil, olive oil. Yeah. I've, I'm yeah. just sort of boosting the flavor of salads by um, sort of dicing them up and putting, throwing them into the salad. So exactly. And so these are powder. And so because of the powder, if, if you can do, you, we, we thought that'd be fun. You could even do more of that. We haven't launched those on our site yet, but they went into the Spice Club and we got really good feedback about them. Now, if you find yourself short of tomatoes, we, sweet Anu, who is that lady? We, we interviewed someone who, who grew up on a tomato farm in Sonoma, California. Yeah, and I can't remember. That, that, that's the source of all the sun-dried tomatoes that you're... Oh, that's what I, I have all the sun-dried tomatoes, right? You've got to have a tomato person. You've got to have a tomato connection. And I yeah, moved well, from... California to New York at the beginning of the pandemic by accident. I didn't know that's when things were happening, but I missed tomato season in the West Coast where you could have tomatoes for like six, seven months of the year. And here in New York, it's real, it's real narrow. You got to get them while they're here in the middle of the summer. Yeah, well, I keep, I, I love them. I could live on tomatoes, even winter tomatoes I couldn't eat. And um, I find out that they're I have osteoarthritis, and it's supposed to be the one food, nightshade families, the food you should never eat with osteoarthritis. Oh, no. I can't, can't give them up. Yeah, some every day anyway. just not worth giving up. Maybe no, I don't think. I, Joyce Goldstein is supposedly researching that as a subject for one of her upcoming books, and I keep asking because she hasn't come to the answer yet. <laughs> <laughs> You're eagerly so, waiting. So, I mean, what is? So, you change the spice club, the the spices. You change them every three months. Yeah, and that's the idea. Is that you'll get? So, we also had some uh, Morogoro cacao from Tanzania, which we just really love, and that's been on our site. But we got a fresh batch in, and we thought people would appreciate that. And then we'd actually worked with a company called Enzo, and they're really well known for their olive oils and their balsamic vinegars. Um, they're based in California. They have an olive orchard, but they also have an almond orchard, I think is also what it's called. And they make this incredible almond butter, and they wanted to oh, do yeah. a spiced almond butter. So we did like an autumn spiced almond butter with them, and we just had enough for the Spice Club for that one. So those all went to the Spice Club, and then that was the beginning, middle, and end of the almond butter. But that was very fun. Well, I mean, it sounds really wonderful and exciting to me. And uh, I, I also had... Um, on the agenda for what we're going to talk about, um, the some of your other re recent collaborations. I ha had listed the um, 
the masala blends. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, so Ethan, my co-founder, actually started his cooking career. Um, he'd worked at a handful of restaurants, and one of those was at Tabla, which was Chef Floyd Cardoza's restaurant sure, in sure. Manhattan. I loved that restaurant. And, and he did such a beautiful job. Like he, he, it was, it was Indian food and high cuisine in a way that that wasn't present in America. But it, it was so beautiful and so delicious. And so they right, developed right. a friendship from then. And that was back in 2009, maybe 2010. Um, mm-hmm. And so starting a spice company, kind of Ethan had gone back to Chef Floyd and been like, "Hey, we have spices now. What do you think?" And they kept talking and all that. And and what we ended up kind of nailing down was saying, hey, he had some spice blends that he had recipes for that he had never produced, and, and he liked our spices. And so we said, okay, great, let's do this as a collaboration. And we'd gone for a year back and forth with him on the recipes and, and what the components were and what ratios and, and all that stuff. He'd even asked us to source some spices for it. And so it just took us some time to pull it all together and, you know, cross our T's and dot our I's and – we actually were in India at the beginning of March on a sourcing trip, and that was at a time where, you know, COVID had gone from not something on most people's radars to very much so on everybody's radars. And we spent time with Chef Cardoz, uh in India at his brand-new uh, sweet shop that he had just opened in Bombay. Right. Um, and by the time he came back from India, which was uh, two days later, and we actually ended up cutting our trip short, and just three days after that, we ourselves came back from India um, Ethan and I had landed in the U.S. and both had COVID. We we didn't know it at the time, but um, we had lost our sense of smell. I uh, came back oh, a few no. weeks later. For we had somebody fatigue. in your business, that's awful. Oh my God, it was it was scary, and we didn't know. But but we we kind of healed relatively quickly, uh, and then we we went on with our days. But Chef Cardoz came back with COVID and very sadly ended up passing away um, yeah. by the end of yeah, March. Terrible thing. And terrible, so that terrible. was the first high-profile person. That was the first person that we knew that had actually passed away from COVID, and it was heartbreaking. Me too, And so actually. a few weeks later, we ended up just reaching back out to Barca, his, his wife, who we had actually – she had been part of everything. She had been part of the business. She had been part of all of our conversations. And we said to her, do you want to keep these blends going, or do, do you want to stop? Like, you tell us. We'll, we'll follow your lead on all this. And she said that she wanted it as a memorial for him to be kind of part of the legacy that, that he left. And so we pushed forward on the recipes. She actually came with us to our packing facility in upstate New York, and we hand-blended 270-pound, you know, sacks full of the blends. We ground everything and blended it by hand with big paddles and all that. And we put together the first round of the three blends. And so the three blends are, one is a, a garam masala, which is typically a little bit of a sweeter masala, but that's also used very often in savory food. Um, Floyd's version is even sweeter. It's more cinnamon. It's more like it, it gives you this really beautiful aroma, star anise. Um, and so that's the, the garam masala, which is a classic one, but with Chef Floyd's own take on it. Um, there's the Goan masala, which is from where he grew up. That has this, yeah, he like, grew up beautiful. Yeah, that's right. So it, it, it has cloves in it. It has turmeric. It has ginger. Yeah, well, I, I keep mem- trying to remember to order those. So um, uh, uh, you still have some? Yeah, we'll ship you some. Just send me your address. Well, I'll, and we'll make sure to get you some. Now, what you? Every time I open your emails, you send. How often do you send out those emails? We send emails about every two weeks. We found that well, that's like you're not, always doing not something, something new. Crazy. 
We try to have them. We try to give people a reason to open them. We get how many emails did you get over the holidays? It was like sale happening now. Order, qu-, you know, like they're all these like, really annoying emails that everybody gets, and we're like, if we email you, oh no, you're we can you're make wonderful. Your time to open. Yeah, so and we try you, to make them fun and interesting, and have new new content and new stuff to launch in there. We well, it's really it's, they're important because they're they're educational as well, which is part of of your your goal is you want to tell the stories of the people behind these spices as well as stories of the spices themselves, right? Yeah, yeah, and like even people say, "Oh, I love vanilla." And then you're like, "Well, where where does vanilla come from? How did it get there?" Everyone thinks about bourbon vanilla as as the alcohol, but it's more bourbon the family <laughs> from from France that had been had these estates and and it was under their kind of direction that a lot of the vanilla you know, got ended up happening. And so, like, there's all this history of spices that have traveled the world. Nobody knows where they came from. Nobody knows how they even got there or even what the plants look like. And so we like to share those stories and make a connection all the way back to the farm and to the farmer that grew it. And we found that people appreciate that because if you love cooking and you love food, then this is a big part of what you're doing. That's true. Now, the, now the, this the vanilla. Now, vanilla, we think, we think of vanilla from Madagascar, but you found vanilla in the African continent itself and also in, was it Peru? Yeah, the yeah that's right. And the, and the, so we launched and almost immediately ran out of, we under we, we underestimated this, but but so vanilla is, is native to the Americas and, and what that means is that the bees, which is called a dilemma bee, <laughs> this is yeah, a bee why that, is it called that, a dilemma bee? Yeah, I that's, don't know, actually. <laughs> I was funny. not able to dig far enough. But the, the, the Pompona vanilla in Peru is a different variety than what you're used to. They're kind of, they look like flat bananas. <laughs> they're like a little bit fatter. They're about three to five times the size of a regular vanilla bean. Um, and they look almost, or like a boomerang almost. And yeah, they're, they're so peculiar looking. They're very really peculiar. Totally. Well, hold on. How did they get from the Americas to Africa? and especially to Madagascar. How did they get there? Yeah, so v- vanilla was, you know, was, was popular, and, and what ended up happening is, is like many things, when, when things were, quote-unquote, discovered, you know, things that were already there, but somebody new came, oh, I discovered this, um, they would bring them with them in places where they had a kind of cheap labor, where uh, spices, okay, and, including vanilla, grow really well in this kind of subtropical climate. And so they ended okay. up kind of traveling the world, and everybody tried to create their own, like, secret stash of where those spices were grown that was in a colony that they owned that was with labor that they had kind of taken control over. And so we right. ended up traveling the world, and it took a very long time for, for the uh, pollination by hand technique to be figured out, which is how yeah, most of the in the story. world pollinated. I think that that's yeah. so interesting where the, uh, it grows on an, an orchid, uh, right? Yeah, and, that's right. And the, it blooms for like three to five hours once a year, is it? And in yep. that period of time, um, by hand, human beings uh, uh, in, in parts of the world where you don't have these bees, uh, they have to pollinate them, as I understand it, by hand in that time frame. And I understand that it's uh, young boys that do that. Is that true? Um, it, it, it could be the farmers, it could be the family, it could be anybody who, but the, the technique was originally figured out by a slave who, you know, ended up not getting the honor and the recognition that he deserved, you know, in his life for, for 
basically allowing vanilla to be produced outside of a pretty narrow band where this dilemma be exists and kind of unlock the global vanilla industry. And he wasn't recognized for this during his life. Um, and, and so, yeah, th- there was this whole idea that vin- the, the flower, the vanilla is a climbing vine, right? And this beautiful orchid opens up and you've got to oh, grab gorgeous. it at just the right time. And you kind of squeeze the two parts of it to get it to self-pollinate. And then that produces all the vanilla beans. And so during the season, the farmers have to be very, very wary of exactly when this is all happening to make sure they can just grab it because the vanilla is so valuable that, that you know, if you miss it, you don't, you don't want to miss the chance to pollinate the flowers. And then it takes three to six months to produce these long vanilla beans. Those are the planifolia beans. That's what we bring from Tanzania, um, unlike the banana-shaped Pompona vanilla beans. Yeah. Um, and then they take them and they dry them in the sun during the day and they put them in a wooden box at night. And they do that for a few months after that literally massaging the vanilla beans every day when they open the box and bring them back out to dry in the sun. And that's what takes this, like, green, this green bean to kind of develop all these beautiful flavors and, and the darker color that, that is the vanilla that we know and love. So that's why vanilla is expensive. It is so much work. It is so hard to, oh, to kind of produce that yeah. vanilla. And, and, no, I mean, it's, it's a... Um it, it, they're expensive, but it's also really hard um, to, to um, market enough to make this worthwhile, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's the challenge that oftentimes you have these very, and this is actually true across all of spices, that like unlike corn or coffee or even tea, you, you can't like, you can't industrialize in the same way, which is both just means that like so many spices are still harvested by hand dried in the sun there's very little machine and animal labor across the spice industry because cardamom is different than vanilla is different than cloves is different than peppercorns they all grow and so you don't have the same levels of scale as with some ingredients that we more commonly find across the rest of our like you know food supply chain and so yeah vanilla beans take a lot of care and in some countries it even got so bad there was a report published a few days ago uh, sorry a few a few months ago that had said that they estimated up to 15% of the vanilla in the world had been stolen at some point because it was oh, just wow. so valuable that, that, right. that people would come in and they'd put dogs and armed guards and things like that to guard their vanilla vines. And there's just been a lot of fluctuations in the vanilla world. When you have any of that valuable, there's always some bad actors that come in and try to get, get some for themselves. Yeah. How, do you, how do you source it, Ori? Do you, do you have an agent there who ships it to you or do you go fetch it? Yeah, it's a good question. So, so the, the vanilla in Peru, the Pompona vanilla, uh, we actually ended up meeting, connecting directly with the farmer who had a, who had, he has, this is my batch, this is what I've got for the year, and do you want it? And that's why it sold out so quickly, because he didn't have that much. We bought it all, and then we had as much, and he shipped it directly to us. Um, from the Tanzania, we actually work with a co-op uh, in, in Tanzania. Uh, they're based got in it. Zanzibar. And they keep bringing more farmers into the co-op. We just want them to grow, and we want to help finance that growth as much as possible. But we work directly with that cooperative of farmers. And so we really, we really work as, as close to the farmer as is possible because that's, that's our guarantee that we know where it came from and how it was grown and who grew it. Because there's so much other stuff that happens in between it leaving the farm and it arriving to your, like, grocery store that our business model is to go directly to the farmer and work with these exceptional farmers and build direct relationships with them. Yeah, now you used to do, I, I haven't um, seen it lately, you used to do little profiles, little stories about each of these farmers. Are you still doing that? 
Yeah, yeah. As we launch new things, we try to do in our newsletters, like dig a little bit deeper and tell the stories of those farmers. The end mm-hmm. of the year last year was so crazy for us. Obviously, the pandemic has impacted a lot of industries. We had a lot of people that were very excited to receive their spices in time for the holidays at a time where the post office was buckling under the pressure of all the packages being shipped around and trucks are coming late and shipments are getting missed and packages are getting lost. And so if you've been following us for the past two or three months, we have just been trying to keep the wheels on the bus, you know, right. (laughs) We've just been trying really hard to make sure everything is getting where it needs to get to at the right time in a good condition. Now, what, what about this, this arrangement called collaborators? Yes, very good question. So part of what, what we are now doing, we'd always done this, but when we started the business, we were so excited if we could get a bigger company than us to use our spices in one of their products because that would give us exposure. Now we're doing right. the opposite, where we're trying to find companies that are smaller than us and, and, use, and have them integrate our products, our spices, into their products and then we can buy, you know, a few thousand units of it, introduce them to our customers, tell a cool story about a different way to experience your spices, um, and, and then bring it in front of them. And so just to give you one example, there is a nonprofit restaurant called Emma's Torch, and they're based in Brooklyn. And they hire and employ refugees. Um, they put them through a training program that's both a culinary training program but also interviewing skills and helping put resumes together and all that. Um, and since, and normally they raise their money and they make their money by running a restaurant. Um, but since the pandemic, the restaurant is closed. So we went to them and said, let's do some collaboration products because you still have your kitchens. You still have your employees. Like, let's, let's make it work. And so they decided they would do a spiced nuts. And so they picked a, a medley of nuts. They mixed them together with a little bit of honey and our spices. And then we bought all of them from them, and then we give them 100% of of any profits off of that. And so that's a fun collaboration project. But ideally, every time you come to our site, you see a chocolate bar that has our spices in it. You see a cool jam that has our spices, a honey, a spiced nuts, or whatever it may be. It's just part of the reason to, like, get you to get excited about coming back to Burlap and Barrel and, and kind of discovering something that wasn't there the last time that you visited the site. Well, um, but I don't know. We we started following you way way early, <laughs> and now every you time sure you did. pick up a magazine, <laughs> you're in it. <laughs> so the word's gotten out, but you've a whole different um, kind or size of company to run now. I mean, how yeah. how are you going to stay on top of this uh, the personalized aspect of it? It's a great question, actually, and I'm, I'm actually really glad you asked. This is coming at a great time. Uh, today, we actually hired our first full-time employee. Uh, we, oh, wow. we are bringing on somebody who's going to be our director of operations that's going to just help make sure that things are moving from the farm into the U.S. Once they're in the U.S., they're getting packed and stored and labeled and jars and lids and all that stuff. We'll help oh, do that. Oh, great. But we now also have a team of, I don't know, four part-time people, and these are all people that, that used to be our customers or still are, um, but that, that we met through our Spice Forum, which is our group on Facebook where our customers go and post recipes and ask questions and share knowledge. Um, and so we have a group of, of really funny, really incredible cooks that are helping do customer support. But anytime you're like, where's my order? Or I just got some cured sumac. What do I do with that? You have some really thoughtful <laughs> people that are just as crazy as us about spices and are just as creative. 
to come in and, and help you and talk to you about that. So we've been trying to think about how do we grow and how do we keep this. If we can keep employing our customers, then I think that there will be a really good, it'll be a really good experience for anybody that tries to engage with our company. Well, you know, I love your company. I love you guys and um, and your products I love. So anyhow, um, yeah, um, somebody just sent me a bunch of tamarins. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what to do with that. <laughs> Sounds great. Are they in the shells still or is it just the Yeah, they are still in like, the shells. The shells are kind of broken. The wine? Yeah. The shells are kind of broken, but they are still in the shells. Yeah, well, they got smashed around in the... In, yeah. yeah, well, it sounds uh, like it's uh, it's one of those. I feel like like about about tamarinds, almost like eating like uh, crabs, where like it's it, it's a lot of work, but but you get these like nice nice like nuggets of like deliciousness, you know, every yeah. every so often to just keep you going. You're like what it takes to like open up a pomegranate and remove the seeds from it. Oh yeah, I and do so that. I love tamarinds. <laughs> Here's a deal for you: if you if you if you decide you need a supply of tamarinds. We we can connect you with a source in the island state <laughs> our, of Tasmania. Our cousin oh, Richard wow. grows tamarinds, and that and I know the, for his personal use he freezes them. But I haven't I haven't asked him how to do that yet. Yeah, to find out. Yeah, that sounds, he, that he sounds also great. grows organic avocados too. Yeah, it sounds like everybody. a good family member to have. This sounds like he's a little, you get good. He's a little, he's a little too far away. Has made. Yeah. It was last time we went there. We were in transit for thirty-three hours. <laughs> oh my God! We, when did we you go to visit? Hello. Yes, Mrs. Haig. Yes. We 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 have to get we have to get some of Floyd's mas go go masala. You you remember when he was in Pittsburgh? He, oh he yeah, cooked, yeah, yeah. He cooked yeah. for an organization, organization called Share Our Strength. And oh he yeah, cooked, he, he, he cooked a dish that. Uh, that was native to Goa, and he explained what it, why it was important because the shrimp run, I guess, not all year in Goa. So when the, in the monsoon season, I think it is when the, when there's a lot of shrimp around, they catch all the shrimp, and then they use the curry preserve it and oh they, interesting by by, preser- by preserving it that way they can have shrimp all year even though there's no shrimp in the ocean anymore interesting. yeah that sounds great oh, and, and i think yeah there's so much to learn in this world or i mean it's, i'm glad that uh, that you're talking about um, your expansion because it's very obvious that you're doing that because you have a quality product and and a really inspirational mission. So, again, uh, listeners, it's called Burlap and Barrel with one L. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, if you're interested in exploring spices, uh, your website is? Burlapandbarrel.com. B-U-R-L-A-P-A-N-D-B-A-R-R-E-L. I know it's a mouthful, but you'll find us. <laughs> And Ori, thank you again for talking to us. Keep us posted. Yeah, thank we're, you so much. We're for gonna be me. doing really this about every three months you. actually. Right. Yeah, and I can't wait to see what we've figured out in the next three months. But but email me your address and I will I'll make sure you guys get some spices. Great, thank you. <laughs> okay. And, and yeah, and hello to Ethan as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'll send your regards. <laughs>
Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Next time we're going to take a trip to Indonesia, talk about spicy, uh, and we're going to talk to Laura Lee, who uh, is now actually in, in, in London, um, and uh, she does all. She's such an interesting background. She'll tell you something about that. Great conversation. More the, fun to talk to her. The reason we're bringing it to you so quickly is we, we, we we've been dabbling a little bit with our contacts with the British royal family. Peter Peter's watching back to back episodes of The Crown, but. Lara Lee actually cooked not just once but twice at the Australian Embassy Australia House in London for Harry and Meghan. Right. Just to double check, is is the audio okay for you? Because I've got my headset plugged into my laptop, but I have dropped this laptop a few times, so just tell me if it sounds a bit muffled and I'll call you with my phone instead. No, you you sound all right to me. Oh, good. Okay, perfect, perfect. We're starting. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Our, our current guest is Laura Lee, who has a, a really wonderful background, very colorful, I might say. Uh, your book is very colorful as well. Um, but you are, let's see, you have an Australian mother and an Indonesian father, and uh, you left from um, from. Um, your family was actually, uh, including your father brought everybody to um, Sydney, Australia. So you have all of that in, in your background as well. And we're talking to you in London because I don't know how you ended up in London, but that's where you are, right? And that is you where, have... I, where I am, yes. And I, I, think, I think it's a rite of passage for most Australians to leave the very large island of Australia <laughs> and to go... You know, wander overseas and explore the world. Um, but I have been in London for ten years. Um, I'm, I'm going to blame that on falling in love with a British man. That is why oh, I, I ended see up staying. Everybody. Well, I did it too. You know, <laughs> yeah, just, exactly. that's how I got to uh, Australia and England. But um, <laughs> your your business is called Kiwi and Rue, which is the Australian part of it, I, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and um, the, no, the ki- kiwi is New Zealand. Where, New Zealand, where, right. Where did right. New Zealand sneak in there? But yes, anyhow, yes. so <laughs> we were intrigued. Your, your cookbook is your first, and it's it's really uh, it's called Coconut Ensemble. And whatever would be more representative of Indonesian uh, kitchens than coconut ensembles, right? Exactly, exactly. And now, have you uh, been to Indonesia before, Anne and Peter, or um, have no, you only kind of no, travelled no, there through, through the food? <laughs> um, no, we we have not been to Indonesia, and um, oh, I'm, okay. I'm, it, I find it kind of intimidating. I keep asking Peter, who has the degree in geography from Cambridge, and how, how does it come about? I mean, there are all these gazillion islands, and I guess oh, that's volcanic and whatever, right? 
Well, the, you know, the landscape changes depending on, on where you travel and it is, oh, it is so diverse. In fact, you know, the, the national motto of Indonesia is uni- uh, unity in diversity. And it's so interesting because there are 17 and a half thousand islands. Um, there's, I think, uh, more than 600 local dialects. Uh, you know, there's so many different uh, influences because it's been a trade route for more than a thousand years. So right. influences from Europe and China, uh, Malaysia, um, the Middle East, uh, you know, so, so you on. You have a and Chinese component too. I forgot to mention that, right? I Your father. do. Yes, my, my dad is Chinese Indonesian. So yes, okay. so four four generations uh, of uh, you know fourth generation Chinese Indonesian. Um, you know, and he has a really interesting back, background too. You know, uh, but um, but you know that, that that it's such a long story. It's for another day. But you know, my my I think my, my great great grandfather had two wives, one in China and one in Indonesia. So really, that's <laughs> an interesting family history. So um, yeah, lots of family all around the world. <laughs> <laughs> when well, is this picture of you in the book? Yes, it is. Yes, that's a, a lovely picture of me. Um, that was taken in central Java, and I was just on my way back from, I went to this um, really beautiful food market in a bamboo forest uh, just near where that photo was taken, and I actually asked, I was in, being dr- kind of driven by a driver, and I actually asked the driver to stop, and, you know, could we take a photo at this at this particular oh, it's, point? It's a great photo, yeah. but I was, yeah. I, mean, I was taken by the fact that uh, your grandmother was called the, the, the flower of what? The oh yeah, yeah. I, no, you inherited her good looks. <laughs> oh, I know. She's you know she she really she really is um she she really is a, a a beautiful beautiful woman and um you know I'm so I'm so proud to you know to to have called her my, my grandmother. But yeah, she was known as a great beauty in Kupang in Timor um where she where she where you know where she grew up and uh yeah she was you know known as like the the rose of of, of the area because she had so many so many suitors kind of chasing <laughs> after her to kind of win her hand but interestingly my my grandfather um he was the first man to drive a uh, a motorbike and it was none other than a ducati um yeah. motorbike i, I noticed that actually so she went for the, I think she went for the bad boy on the, on the motorbike in the end. Actually, no, he wasn't a bad boy. But, um, but, you know, I could just imagine the first guy with a motorbike in town, of course, that was the guy she chose. <laughs> so where did you meet this British uh, husband of yours? You know what? I mean, I am very tech savvy, but, you know, 2012, it was before Tinder came along. I, I met him on the old-fashioned, you know, internet <laughs> dating website. Oh, really? You met him on a website? I did. I did. I like. I um because I'd moved to London uh, in 2011 and um, made some great friends over here. Some of which, some of which you know are, are British and others that are Australian actually that have kind of moved over um from, to, over to here. But I just, you know, I didn't, I wasn't meeting any guys. I think I was having too much fun with my girlfriends. So um, I thought I'd kind of put myself out there on the internet. And uh, and I actually, I mean, I'm I'm quite tall. I'm five foot ten, and I think I might have found the tallest man in Britain because my husband's six foot six, and that was the first thing I saw <laughs> when he messaged me. And it said, you know, six foot six architect, and I was like, oh, that, that sounds bit, that sounds quite dreamy. And um, and then yeah, and then it, it, went, it went from there. <laughs> Oh boy! Well, of course. I mean, our our, our story is kind of 
wild too. Well, that's another. Let's talk about the book. <laughs> we'll have to talk about this another time. I'm looking forward to hearing it though. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, it's great. I love a so, good love. But story. anyhow, this um, this is your first cookbook, and but you actually, I guess you got bits of um, your your family. Uh, culinary history from your grandmother, your Indonesian uh, grandmother, uh, but you really had to set out to learn uh, about your native cuisine uh, on a trip where you, you you had a mentor, and then you had. Um, I, I always loved the fact that people were able to it, uh, sort of. I don't know, move into people's kitchens. Nobody's ever invited me to do that when I've traveled. But so you, you got to learn in, in, uh, in private homes, and you got to learn the culture from um, travel. Um, I did. Oh, yeah, so and, and but you you had the seed planted in you anyhow because of your grandmother who cooked for you for a while when you were in Australia, right? She did, she did. And, and I tell you what, Anne, actually, um, should you and Peter ever um, get to Indonesia, I have a very big little black book of wonderful home cooks, and they will all invite you into the kitchen. Really? I promise you that, because Indonesians are so proud of their cuisine. You know, I think um, a huge part of their identity, um, and certainly my, I found this with my grandmother and my father as well and my aunties, you know, you know, food is something that, you know, really, you know, really comes from the soul, and it is... Uh, you know, the act of eating, uh, you know, it's a real joy and a, and a celebration. And I mean, many cultures have this, of course, you know, uh, but, you know, I think the Indonesians, when they found out that I was writing a cookbook, there was such great pride to, to share their family recipes with me that, you know, they would welcome me into their home like I had known them for 10, 20 years or like, you know, like I was a distant cousin and, you know, they'd welcome me into their home for three days and we would just cook and cook and cook. It was just, it was spectacular. But, but you know, the, the foundation was really set um, th- thanks to my, my grandmother who I called Pawpaw and uh, she lived with us uh, when I was a little girl growing up in Sydney um, and it was quite, you know, funny in terms of what would end up on our dinner table every night because if, if my Australian mother cooked, it was lamb chops and green beans, you know, <laughs> mashed potatoes. Um, but my grandmother would sneak in the steamed bowl of rice <laughs> and there would always be rice at the table no matter what was on the table. And then there would um, usually be sambal because sambal is a, is a chili relish. Yeah, uh, I'm going to ask you to talk more about that. Uh, you know, yes. it's... Um, there, First, I wanted to ask you, um, there's such diversity in, in every conceivable way, even like in the religions. You talk about how uh, it's the largest uh, Muslim population in, uh, uh, spread out across, but there are certain parts. And so in those areas of Indonesia, um, there's no pork. But then there are certain pockets where there is pork. I mean, isn't this, there's so much individual variation in the cuisine did you have some difficulty getting a handle on what could be listed in the cookbook as as an indonesian cuisine yes well you know i think if if you ask any indonesian you know what their favorite sambal is for example they would say my mother's (laughs) and that's kind of how it it kind of works and um and yes there are many there are many many kind of variations of different dishes so you know uh if we take nasi goreng uh which is indonesian fried rice as an example um there are 
you know, hundreds of variations across Indonesia and depending on where you travel, you know, it might use different types of ingredients or produce. But, you know, at the heart of it, um, you know, Indonesian uh, home cooks are very intuitive. And so, um, you know, there are, generally speaking, a, a core kind of list of ingredients that will go into a particular dish. And then the variations will vary depending on perhaps where the lamb was used or beef or pork or perhaps, you know, in a particular region they might use some fresh herbs like um, something called kamangi, which is lemon basil. But in another area, you know, they might use a lot more, you know, kind of uh, ground spices. They might use more white pepper. But, you know, there, there are certain dishes where, you know, you could kind of say, okay, there, there will always be these six ingredients. You know, there might be, you know, coconut milk and there might be tamarind or galangal or, you know, um, ginger and so on. So, you know, uh, when I was learning – oh, sorry, Peter. No, no, no. You go, go ahead. ahead. Oh yes. Um, tell, when, yeah. tell me when it's my turn. That's all right. Oh yeah, no worries. <laughs> yeah. So when, when I was when I was learning these recipes, the thing that I found the most challenging actually is that um, uh, the home cooks didn't follow a recipe. The recipe kind of was never always the same. So if they were making a particular dish, they would have a you know um, a fingernail, a pinky fingernail of turmeric. They might have you know uh, a thumb a thumb length of ginger. Uh, you know, they'll have a handful of garlic cloves, you know, a handful of uh, salads, maybe. A, and, and so I was, you know, madly counting the, the garlic cloves and madly counting how many yeah. chilies and which chilies. Oh, you're using two varieties. You're using the small <laughs> bird-eye chilies and the large chilies. And, you know, it was just this kind of counting exercise. So I was madly scribbling this down. But, you know, for, um, for those home cooks, when I kind of asked them about that kind of technique, that, you know, they would say, well, you know, because it comes so much down to the taste and, uh, you know, the seasoning at the end or, you know, different garlic cloves, you know, taste different, um, different, you know, different seasons, different times of year. So they just kind of had this intuition in terms of how things would work. And, uh, and I kind of had to let go of that chef training that I have in my head to think things have yeah. to be a certain way because actually within well, the you know, we've all gone through that trying to get the, our family's recipes. I mean, my grandmother never measured anything yes. <laughs> at all, you know. And, and some of the family recipes that are actually written down, which in itself is unusual, they're, you know, you take one dish and then you have five different family members contributing to it and nobody's specifying measurements at all. Oh, it's a, you've done a good and, job though. And, 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 and these are very interesting recipes. Um, there are certain things that are kind of universal, um, starting with the fact that what do you call, how do you pronounce karupu? You always have a savory uh, starter. Oh, krupuk. Oh, the krupuk crackers, you mean? Um, yes. I yes. like the way you refer to the sound of them. And, like, even on the street, you know, you, you could hear people cracking, these, snapping these oh. crackers. It's it it is amazing. You know, you'll you'll kind of go into any restaurant, and um, you know, they'll, there there will be in a little basket. Um, you know, sometimes they're you know wrapped in plastic, or sometimes they're kind of sitting in different kind of containers. Um, but it really you know adds adds so much texture to a meal. And you know, if let's say if someone was eating a bowl of soto, which is a really delicious warming soup, some people will put the krupuk crackers into the soup so they get all soggy whereas other people want them to be crunchy. And, you know, people are kind of using them in different ways and everyone kind of has their way of using their krupuk. But I just love the kind of snap and the crunch. And it really does 
stimulate the appetite as you're hearing these sounds. And it's, you know, it's really, it really makes it a very lively experience. And I find, you know, the, the way that Indonesians eat is very sensory anyway, because, you know, traditionally, um, they would eat with, um, you know, with, 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 with their right hand. And, um, and, and now, you know, I mean, more modern settings, they'll eat with a fork and a spoon. But, you know, you know, you kind of, I've seen, um, been at table settings. I'm not very good at eating with my hand. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I kind of would go for the fork and spoon. But, you know, you would see kind of people kind of taking the beautiful kind of, you know, silky flesh off a, off a grilled fish and then eating it with their hand or scooping up the rice with their hand. And then you hear the crackers. You can kind of smell the fragrance of the food. You know, it's a feast for the eyes because it's just yeah, you color, spe- you know. You specify that a part of, of Indonesian cuisine, above all, aroma, which is interesting. Mm, yes, yeah, hold, yes. Hold on and a it, second. Let, let, me, let me put in my question mark now. Okay. <laughs> we're Thanks, we're blocking him out. I've been very patient for the last 10 minutes. <laughs> but, but we've never been in Indonesia, but when we were in Amsterdam just around the corner from the Reichstag gallery. We went Mm. into an Indonesian restaurant and there was some way that they served the food and it was sort of like a whole whole lot of different dishes. One after the other, after the other, after the other. It's Dutch. Yes, I always pronounce this wrong. Ristafel, I think it's called. it's, um, It's a Dutch... It's a Dutch tradition, actually. So that's something that the Dutch brought to Indonesia, um, you know, uh, you know, I guess for the last kind of 200 years. And it was actually a, a tradition, I believe, that was kind of only really preserved for the kind of the Dutch colonizers. So they kind of, um, you know, that it was kind of like all of the different types of dishes that would come in. And so it was, it was kind of at, at the time a dish that was really reserved for the very wealthy. Um, and over time, obviously, it's become far more accessible and uh, something that, you know, people within local restaurants can now enjoy that, that tradition. But it kind of started from that kind of, you know, the, the, Dutch, the Dutch coming in and wanting to kind of experience this kind of feast of multiple little plates of food, almost like, I guess, how you would imagine eating tapas is kind of, the, for anyone at home listening that, you know, is trying to imagine it, it's like, you know, a big tray of lots of little plates of different types of dishes to, to kind of taste. Yeah, we had that at the Indonesian restaurant in Pittsburgh. I can't remember uh-huh. what it's called, Stoffel, I don't know. But we okay. had that. It went on dish after dish after dish. Yes, yes. So, yeah, so, you know, it's interesting, actually, because when you sit at, um, at the Indonesian dinner table, you know, with a local family, the way that they will eat is banquet style of eating, but rather than these kind of little small kind of tapas style kind of plates that you kind of get in the kind of experience that you've had in Amsterdam, you know, there, you know, there is a whole grilled fish and there is a large big portion of nasi goreng and there's a lot of satay or there might be some, you know, some sayur, which is vegetables. And so you're still kind of getting that banquet style eating, but, you know, it's for quite a large, you know, perhaps quite a large family. Maybe there's lots of children. Maybe there's the parents. Maybe there's the grandparents. And so lots of different people are kind of eating off that kind of, that kind of table and experiencing it that way. But that you'll never kind of get them the entree main dessert that we get in Western style eating. For sure, it is multiple kind of dishes for textures, for tastes and flavor and color and, and smells and so on. Mm. Now, the, the, now, the blurb in your book says that you... you you have you do not pop-ups exactly. I don't remember the word, 
but but you you do meals for people, including the royal family. And since since I'm ODing on watching episodes of The Crown right now, <laughs> which, which, which 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 one? Of the royal, you want to know which one? The, yeah, which, yeah. Which, one's, which one's like... I can't picture the queen who won't even eat garlic eating any oh. kind of a spicy cuisine. <laughs> you know, it was actually um, Prince Harry and uh, Meghan, Meghan Markle, and we fed them twice. And the, and the, reason, uh, the reason for that was because um, my catering business in the UK, we are a preferred caterer at the Australian and the New Zealand embassies. Oh, right. So no, quite okay. often there will be galas or special events for world leaders or including royalty. And, um, yeah. and this was, uh, yeah, on two occasions we were, we were able to, to feed them both. And uh, we even um, uh, set them aside a special little canapé platter for, for them to kind of, because, you know, uh, Prince Harry and Meghan, I think they get inundated with people wanting to speak to them. So we oh, managed sure, to, yes. you know, get well, the, right. the wait staff to kind of reserve them this little platter so they could kind of go to a private little place and enjoy the food without everyone watching them eat and then they could go back to the guests. So that was, that was quite nice actually. But, um, yeah, well, that was a, that was a real highlight for me. <laughs> no, back to your book, um, you, you run us through a whole bunch of, um, things that could cope, uh, could, could be uh, viewed as street food. Um, and, and then you have, there are certain characteristics and certain characteristic dishes that you highlight. And tell me again, I, mean, I keep trying to grasp, what exactly is this sambal? It's um, spicy, I gather. I had a recipe um, called Keshiena Curacao, which was from Curacao, but it had uh, Edam cheese in it. So I'm assuming it probably has Dutch origins. And then it called for something which I didn't know what it was, and I never got it, so I wasn't making it. It was called Sambal Olek. Oh, yes, yes. So what what is a sambal? Tell us about sambals. Yes, okay. Well, so Sambal Olek, the one that that you've referred to, is actually kind of the the Dutch word for um, another... Uh, well, a, a very common Indonesian sambal, which is called sambal ulek, and uh, it's That's called right. ulek because um, the uh, in, the way that Indonesians grind their spice paste and their sambals is in a kind of stone or wooden um, style of mortar and pestle. It's actually like a flat basin, and it's called a chobek and ulekan. And so the ulekan grinds uh, into the chobek, which is the bowl. And so the act of kind of grinding the sambal, you kind of say that you ulek, ulek it. So that's kind of where sambal ulek comes from because there's a, there's a, there's a very uh-huh. simple sambal that just boils red chilies and then you um, ulek or you grind the, red, the boiled red chilies with a little bit of vinegar, a little bit of salt and some oil. And that is sambal ulek, which is the most simple sambal but something that you'll find all over Indonesia. So very, very easy to make that one. And actually, there's a recipe for that in my book. But as a whole, what sambal is, is it is a chili condiment. So um, if you think of the way that in the West you might use uh, ketchup or mustard or even, you know, um, a lot of people love using hot sauce, chili sauce, sriracha, sambal is very, very similar 
as a condiment in that, in that regard. But Indonesians are very, very proud of sambal and it is um, something that they really can't live without. So I feel that a meal is not complete for Indonesians without sambal. So you will find at least one or two types of sambal on most dinner tables, um, you know, at, at every meal. And a little bit of sambal will be eaten with every bite of food and not to overpower the flavors of the meal, but to really complement it. So in poorer societies where perhaps they can't afford to eat, you know, to buy a lot of produce, sometimes, you know, they might just eat a bowl of rice with some sambal and the sambal will have such gorgeous umami and flavors that it can really complete and make a meal and it can turn a very bland meal into a really sensational one. But at the heart of it is chilies, so there will always be chilies in the sambal and then um, you might have a myriad of different ingredients. Typically, you'll usually find things like garlic or shallots or ginger as a kind of a base, you know, for a sambal. Um, but, you know, there could be a whole host of other things. It could be bruised lemongrass to infuse. There could be fermented shrimp paste like torasi, which kind of adds a lovely umami element. There could be tomatoes or macaroon lime leaves or tamarind. And so you can imagine the different types of flavor profiles, but sambals can be... Um, cooked and ground, you know, the way I described it, or they can also be sliced and be, and be served raw. So there's a whole host of preparations for sambals and every region has a different type of sambal that they enjoy. So there are um, hundreds of types of sambals across Indonesia. And although the food's very diverse, what is similar for all Indonesians is that no matter what specialty of cuisine they might eat in that particular area because it's so regional, they will always serve sambal at every meal. And that's kind of the, the commonality between, um, you know, between m- most of the regions within Indonesia. Mm. And rice. Rice is pretty universal too, huh? Rice is universal as well, uh, for sure. So, ri- so you, you'll, you'll find rice, you'll find sambal, um, and you'll find the coconut, which is kind of why... Uh, yeah, the I, coconut. I How does that get to be... I mean, what, why always coconut? Yes, yeah, so, you know, the coconut palm, the orenga, I think it's the orenga palm tree, grows, it's bountiful all across Indonesia. And, uh, you know, there's um, the nectar is harvested from, uh, I think it's from the coconut flower, um, and or if it's from the palm tree, uh, you know, palm sugar can be made from the palm tree as well. But if it's from the coconut a palm tree, then it's harvested from the flower and uh, you get palm sugar out of that or coconut sugar that comes out of that. And then, you know, the, the husk of the coconut isn't thrown away and wasted. It's used to kind of add fragrance to, to a fire that might be, you know, cooking some satay, for example. And then the shell of the coconut is used to make utensils. Um, the flesh of the coconut, the young flesh, is used to flavor really lovely desserts, you know, really lovely sweets in Indonesia. So, you know, lovely kind of um, shaved ice kind of uh, desserts that have young coconut and jackfruit and they, they love using avocado in desserts with some you know palm sugar syrup and then you've got the coconut water which is drunk as a refreshment i love you coconut, coconut water so good and then That's coconut good. milk is made fresh you know grating the coconut the mature coconut and then you kind of squeeze it and massage it together with water to make your own fresh coconut coconut milk um, so, you know, the, the coconut is used in so many different ways and nothing is wasted. And so it's such a wonderful kind of resource for Indonesians. And so, you know, you, you'll find it to, you know, to thicken. 
curries, you'll, you know, you'll see grated coconut stirred through with vegetables. You know, it's used in so many different ways and it's a really celebrated flavor profile. And of course they use coconut oil to cook, um, a lot of their food. So, you know, it's, it's just one of those ingredients that just keeps going and going. And so I, I, I loved that, um, you know, as I kind of researched throughout the country. Yeah, you, you started mentioning um, sweets, and, and I think this is interesting about Indonesian cuisine. You point out is uh, like for dessert uh, that really the most common thing is like fresh fruit, but they mm. do serve sweets in um, like uh, if you're having a coffee in the afternoon or tea. And, exactly. And, and I was really blown away by this thousand-layer thousand cake that you have in here. Mm, yes, yes, it is. It is a labor of love, and it's yeah, something I was that say, my grandmother how long used to make. To make it? <laughs> <laughs> so it is. You know, it's quite a legendary cake, really, because um, it's not made in the traditional cake that sense that we might know in in the West. So essentially, um, a batter is made, and it uses. Um, my recipe has twenty two egg yolks, and I think my grandmother's recipe <laughs> used thirty egg yolks, and there's a whole bunch of butter in there as well. So it's you know not the healthiest, but um, you know a single cake of my grandmother's would serve forty people because it's so rich that you only need a little bit to to you yeah, know, enjoy say, yeah. it. But it's you know no. it's infused with you know ground cardamom and ginger and lots of lovely spices, but. So you let you yeah you grill you grill the cake in the oven uh, like about a millimeter or two thick in every layer and then you keep grilling each layer spreading more batter on grilling 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 and you end up with you know the the one in my book has nine layers but the, my grandmother's would have eighteen um, <laughs> I, I I went to nine because I um I felt that the average home cook may not have the patience to go all the way. <laughs> Um, yeah. Now you, you mentioned uh, healthy, and you have um, there are a lot of ingredients that have um, antioxidant stuff, and you even have a section in, in the back of your book for uh, special um, what do you call it uh, diets and things like that. Oh, but yes, one yes. of the things I was concerned about was the, the Indonesian love for all things fried, deep fried. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, is there? The issue with that is a health issue. I mean, some you give some variations where we can actually not deep fry them, but just sauté them. Uh, but has has a curious question. I mean, has the air fryer hit Indonesia? <laughs> no, you know the way that I what I find you know spectacular actually when I was in Indonesia last, you know. The the way that Indonesians deep fry, you know, I know when I deep fry in my home, I've got a deep frying thermometer um, that I kind of stick in there because I never want, you know, never want the, the oil to burn. And I once, when I was pregnant and recipe testing, hilariously, recipe testing for this book, by the way, I put a pot of oil on and I was pregnant. So, I don't know, baby brain, I forgot I put the pot of oil on. It caught on fire. I, oh, I, no. I had the fire brigade. There was so much smoke in the house. I had a fire blanket, oh. so I threw the fire blanket over the, the pot of fire, but I ran out of the house with our dog. My husband was at work, and then I just coughed into the phone saying to my husband, fire, quick, you know, and then I called the 999 fire brigade. Anyway, they shut the whole of my street down. Two fire brigades came. You know, that's fire. quite an exciting moment for me, I must say. You know, I felt this slow motion, fire, firefighters coming into my home saying, don't worry, ma'am. But... um. 
that was actually quite fun. But the fire part was not fun. But um, but luckily the fire blanket actually did manage to take the pot of pot of fire out <laughs> you know i just i you know I, all i could say my dog was terrified i just ran out the house with the dog but um but anyway so fire you know deep frying in me have have a interesting history a checkered history but you know when i was in indonesia uh you know there's no thermometers there's a wok there's some oil and people are just going for it there's just and it comes back to that intuitive cooking and also never turn away from a pot that is of oil that is on the hob i think indonesians are smart enough to not do that but um <laughs> but you know i mean they're deep frying and they're fine with it but you know in terms of uh health effects you know i i i look at indonesians and physically you know like you know th- there isn't such a problem with obesity there than than i see in other countries however there is a very um, high percentage of Indonesians that have diabetes, actually. And I well, think you know, that I, I was going to ask you about this because I, we learned from another cookbook author uh, who's Indian that uh, India itself is the capital of um, diabetes, the diabetes capital of the world. Yeah. Mm. So, Anyhow, I mean, you, this, this, this book, you did such a great job with this book, Laura oh, Lee. Uh, listeners, it's called Coconut and Sambles, Recipes from My Indonesian Kitchen. And uh, Laura will walk you through um, all the vegetarian, the vegetables, tofu, uh, the, the seafood. They have wonderful seafood there, uh, poultry, eggs, meat, sambles, sweets. And then there's a whole section of special diets. A whole section on the uh, the larder. I mean, it's just so rich with um, with Aww. stories and recipes. So I, I wish you, Laura Lee, uh, much success with this book. Again, this is just called Coconut Ensemble. Now, Thank do, you so do, much. Oh, sorry, Peter. Yes. If, if, some, if somebody wants to to hire you to do an event, how do they get in touch with you? Oh, you know, the best way, if you're on social media, uh, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Lara Lee Food. That's L-A-R-A-L-E-E-F-O-O-D. And uh, I read my, my direct messages, so you can message me on that. Or you can find me on, uh, I've got a Facebook page, which is Lara Lee Chef. <laughs> so you can find okay. me on that. Um, yeah, just send me a message. But um, let this be a lesson to everyone. So, you know, be careful when you're deep frying because, you know, <laughs> yeah, even very serious chefs can have boo-boos. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, thank you, Laura. Oh, thank you so much. It was really fun. <laughs> yeah. we, um, we recently interviewed a chef from um, Sydney. Do you know um, Fred's? restaurant called Fred's. Oh, no, you've been gone for 10 years. Oh, what, 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 uh, is it a restaurant called Fred's, did you say? Yeah, it's, it's, called it's Fred's, fairly yeah. new. It's right down the street from, from one of our favorite chefs and restaurants oh, called St. Oh, Peter's. I'm just, Googling. I'm just Googling. Oh, well, yes, Josh Nyland's uh, restaurant, oh, St. Yeah. Peter's. I, I, know, I know that one. Oh, okay, so Fred's, I've just Googled it and it looks fantastic. Yeah. Um, I wish we oh, could go. Great. I'm going to add that to my list. Well, yeah, you know, if we can get to Australia, we, we were in Australia in um, January and, Feb- and February last year, really very luckily j- just before COVID, and then we got back to London. Um, yeah. So I'm very glad my parents got to meet my son then for the first time because he's a little, yeah. you know, he's a toddler well, now. We, li- we lived in Geelong, and Peter also oh. lived longer in uh, New South Wales. And it's, you oh. know, it's it's just so... I'd, I'd like to get there. There's 
so much there. We have relatives and so forth. But it's such it's a long hike. You know. It is. I mean, I, I miss it terribly, and I feel, you know, with with the situation now, with uh, there's, I think there's um, there's thirty seven thousand Australians uh trying to get home to Australia right now. People that are oh, you know trying to move way. home, and because of COVID, that is, you know, it is just impossible. So you know, I'm kind of uh, kind of holding my breath, hoping that you know, in six to nine months' time. You know, I can uh-huh. travel there and see my family again, but, uh, you know, it's a, oh, yes. yeah, it's a bit of a tough time. But, yeah, but, you know, the the food scene in Australia, I mean, honestly, the produce. I know. Food, yeah. oh, going to the supermarket, you kind of just, like, oh, just, I'm just amazed at how fresh and delicious everything tastes. It's just, you know, and the oh, seafood, oh, the oysters, ah. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess that's another wrap. Yeah, that's yeah. quite, quite a wrap, huh? Yes. So, moving on. You, you, want, you want to make your food taste like really good stuff? That's it. You, you, you need a, a little spice in your life right now. There's no question about that. Yeah. Well, until next week, we, same time, same place, what do we say? Goodbye.